Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. Uh, I want to start off talking about Thanksgiving. It's always been a big deal in my family. My parents actually got married on Thanksgiving. They're brand new public school teachers, and the long weekend off was the weekend that worked for them to have their wedding. Thanksgiving is also a big deal because the birthdays of my dad and sister are right around the holiday, or right on it. And so when we get together, we have a lot of reasons to celebrate. And we do so in many of the typical ways. Turkey, mashed potato, pumpkin pie, plus an extra dessert or two for the birthday people. We also have less traditional traditions, like playing Pictionary on a big whiteboard so everyone can see the staggering lack of drawing talent in our family. It's a day of food and laughter and togetherness without the acquisitive aspects of Christmas. I'm quite fond of being together on Thanksgiving, and this year I'm grateful that we'll have Zoom to keep us connected. In terms of the history of Thanksgiving, I grew up with a fairy tale version. The idea that in 1621, pilgrims newly arrived from Europe invited the Indians to share a meal in celebration of a successful harvest. This myth was reinforced everywhere, from historical paintings to a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. And this myth followed me into adulthood for longer than I care to admit. The true history is, of course, much more complicated. An unprecedented meal was shared, but there was not a warm invitation. It did not become an annual event, and it did not provide lasting peace between the colonizers and those they eventually hoped to exterminate. The fairy tale version of the story endures because it's so much easier for members of the dominant culture to live with than the truth. And it's so much easier for the dominant culture to think of native peoples as part of history than to look candidly at the, pre at the present reality. Perhaps now more than ever, people are choosing to know only what they want to know or what best serves their image of themselves. The truth and hard truths can be a tough sell. Our assembly theme this month here at the First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis is healing. And today I wanna to talk about the truth, hard truths, and the critical role they have in healing. And I wanna talk about the challenge of being grateful to learn hard truths. However harsh the reality, however belatedly acknowledged, in my experience, it's still better to know. I don't say this lightly, as we near the end of this long year. We have witnessed raw evidence of so many hard truths about our city, about our country, about the climate. It's been a lot to take in and hold. For many people, these truths of 2020 were not new truths, but they are still hard even if they're not new. The most recent police killing of an unarmed African-American is not any easier to hear about than the previous one. In fact, it may be harder, a repeated trauma one that seems to further narrow any path toward a better future. But it is still ultimately better to know than to not know. It's better for the truth to see the light of day. Or to use perhaps a more apt image in this moment, it's better for the truth to appear in the light of billions of screens, large and small, around the world. And so it is that I find myself grateful in this season of giving thanks, in this year of hard truths. I find myself grateful for the bravery of people like Darnella Frazier, 
the African-American teen who filmed the execution of George Floyd. The world needed to know. The writer James Baldwin used to talk about how exhausting it was to try to get whites to see the reality of African-American lives, a reality that did not serve many whites' self-concepts of benevolence and innocence. Ms. Frazier's video was what many needed to see to finally believe black people and to finally believe in the need for change. The truth didn't change everyone, but there is no going back from the truth she brought forth. You're probably familiar with the expression, the truth will set you free. It's from the Gospel of John in the Christian scriptures. And it refers to how an individual can be liberated from one's sinful ways by believing in Christ. But the idea that the truth will set you free has wide application outside of Christianity. There are all kinds of ways that truth is essential to liberation. Darnella Frazier's video is one example. And on this morning when we've been talking about the Transgender Day of Remembrance and Trans Awareness Week, we find another example in the increased visibility and freedom of trans folk. This would not be possible without bold steps taken to share the truth. The inner truth that trans people know in their hearts and then live out loud, and the broader truth that trans people are full and worthy members of our nation and the human community. These truths are reality. As Shia Diamond sings, we've been begging for the truth, and she offers herself as a vision of how real America walks and talks and exists. We can be grateful for the art and brave witness of all those who move themselves and the world toward the truth. There's another gospel I'd like to quote, and that's the Gospel of Lizzo. Last year, Lizzo had a number one song called Truth Hurts. And that's another truth about the truth. It can hurt. The truth can set you free and it can hurt, and sometimes it can do both at the same time. The truth of George Floyd's killing prompted a wave of freedom and a wave of hurt. The personal traumatizing horror of state violence and the community-wide trauma of the violence and destruction around our city. I wanna point out here that gratitude can be a la carte precise, a sort of surgical strike. You can be extremely grateful for the video that documented the truth without being grateful for every event that followed. You can be grateful that the killing was witnessed while also being horrified by the killing itself. The truth can lead to freedom, but the path may be a turbulent one. I offer one more quick personal story to illustrate the point. Another part of my family history is that I came out to my parents on Thanksgiving. I was in college and the long weekend off from school was the best time that worked out for me to come home and speak the truth. I couldn't live a lie anymore. Coming out was an important step on my path to freedom and it caused hurt and it caused hurt and grief and heartbreak. My burden was lighter, but my family had some new wrestling to do. Things were eventually fine and I'm certainly grateful, but it's a reminder that the truth can bring disruption on the way to liberation. Another big disruptive recent truth for all of us can be found in the outcome of the election. While there was certainly some good news for those who believe in truth and empathy and human rights, some hard truths about America were underscored. And I will say that I don't feel liberated by the knowledge that 74 million Americans found blatant racism not to be a deal breaker, authoritarianism not to be a deal breaker, a quarter million Americans dead through malignant neglect, not to be a deal breaker. A dozen disprovable lies a day, not a deal breaker. 
This truth about so many of our fellow voters does not feel liberating. In fact, it feels constricting and frightening. But even so, it's better that we know it than not know it. I want to acknowledge that it can be hard for anyone to take in large amounts of hard truth. I'm reminded of a phrase I heard last year at a symposium on, of the Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism. The Reverend Dr. Sophia Betancourt, a professor at the Star King School for the Ministry, talked about having stories sieved through the body, sieved through the body. Her evocative phrasing called to mind for me an image of time flowing through us like water, but the silt of hard truths staying behind, weighing us down, producing a heaviness of body and spirit. I've thought of this metaphor many times during these months of pandemic, uprising, and political upheaval, when so many of us have been traveling through our days with psychological loads that we feel in our bones. I would still say, hard as it can be, that it's better to know, to respond, to grat to respond with gratitude to new facts, new information, new narratives, even if they're initially disruptive and hurtful. Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism, also known as Blue, is actually itself the beautiful result of some of the painful truth-telling that has happened in the past several years in the United States and across our denomination. Blue got started around the time of the broader Black, Black Lives Matter movement. And a bit later in the spring of 2017, it was a time of much turmoil in our national UU association, as example after example of systemic racism was brought into the harsh light of truth Today, Blue is a space of safe harbor and a prophetic force for change, reminding us all of the rewards of living into the truth. I mention all this because we are living with so many hard truths. Religious authoritarianism and cult-like gullibility and blatant white supremacy are going to be with us in significant ways for some time. And in the United States, this pandemic can rightfully be called a massacre. Our country's COVID death rate is two and a half times that of Canada, five times that of Germany, 12 times that of Norway. And the deaths are disproportionately hitting our marginalized communities. We've learned that significant portions of our fellow citizens are not willing to do even the simplest act to save their neighbors' lives. And significant numbers among our national leaders also don't care if we die, if it helps them stay in power. We are very much in the middle of these seismic stories that are still being written. So we don't even yet have the benefit of distance to fully process these hard truths. But it's good that we know. Dr. Eddie Glaude Jr., chair of the African-American Studies Department at Princeton, was the speaker at this month's Westminster Town Hall Forum, normally held here in Minneapolis, but conducted virtually. Glaude reminded the audience that James Baldwin, writing in 1963, said that, quote, it is the innocence which constitutes the crime. The innocence is the crime. Responsibility, Baldwin said, never goes away. It can only be abdicated. And Dr. Glaude talked about an epistemic ignorance, widespread, willful, and systemic ignorance of the truth. Examples are easy to find, from ignorance about Thanksgiving's history to climate denial, to ignoring the reality of black and indigenous and immigrant lives. So what do we do about this? About the horror and scope of all that's going on? 
What do we do about all that contradicts our core values about what it means to love our neighbors and support human flourishing? There are countless ideas out there for what to do in these unprecedented times, but let me share just a few. For white people, Dr. Glaude says they need to not only listen to and believe the stories of the marginalized, but also tell the stories. Not co-opt them, but get them into the heads of those who might not otherwise hear them. As an unidentified Twitter user said the other day, the country isn't divided, white people are divided. And so when we white folk learn the unvarnished truths about our country, we could model receiving such truth as a gift and then spread the word. At the same time, we would be wise to accept that there, we would be wise to accept that there are limits right now on who will hear the truth or who will even agree on basic facts of reality. There's currently a robust public discourse about what an American reckoning would look like and what it would entail. That discourse includes looking at the limits of compromise. The author Rebecca Solnit wrote this the other day. If half of us believe the earth is flat, we do not make peace by settling on the earth being halfway between round and flat. Those of us who know it's round will not recruit the other side through compromise. We all know, she says, that you do better bringing people out of delusion by being kind and inviting than by mocking them. But that's inviting them to come over, which is not the same as heading in their direction. Rebecca Solnit's point about kindness and invitation is an important one. To paraphrase Jonathan Swift, we are very unlikely to reason people out of positions that they didn't reason themselves into. Sometimes the best we can do, especially in cases of conspiracy theories and cultish behaviors, which are having their own epidemic, the best we can do is to be ready and welcoming when the fever breaks or the cognitive dissonance becomes too much. But I wanna share two notes on that. One is that no one is required to forgive or absolve their oppressors. Asking those who have been harmed to make nice with those who have perpetuated the harm is a continuation of abuse. Forgiveness can be very beneficial, but it shouldn't be expected. And my second thought is that we shouldn't count on very many people changing their minds anytime soon. Our near-term future as a country will be determined not by argument and persuasion, but by who is strategic and organized around power. Who is best at mobilizing and motivating voters in Georgia, for example? Who is best at pressuring and persuading political leaders, electorally or in the streets, to restore our imperfect democratic norms, to address systemic racism and white supremacy, and to undertake a national reckoning of the past four years? New Yorker magazine writer Masha Gessen puts it like this. We have to talk about what happened and about how we go on living in such a way that it doesn't happen again. Of course, Gessen writes, this process can't succeed as long as nearly equal numbers of Americans live in two non-intersecting realities. But such a process is also our best hope for reclaiming a shared reality. When you have a deep festering wound, Gessen says, you do not heal it by pretending there was no injury. You clean it out and then you stitch it up. So large portions of the population may not be receptive to facts or to equ equity-based 21st century visions for America, but it's still important to offer these up. Imagining a better future is key, and there are a lot of people who can't imagine the country being any better than it is.
They bought into a predator versus prey, win-lose, us versus them mentality. One that's reinforced by racism and by our dehumanizing version of capitalism. If you try to talk about how healthcare is better and cheaper in other countries, or how low-cost higher education might work, you might get a look of great skepticism from someone certain that they are going to be on the losing end of the deal and that undeserving minorities and immigrants are going to win. The Reverend Molly Hausch Gordon, a UU minister I know in Missouri, uses the phrase, imaginations drugged by small comforts into accepting large brutalities. This racist scarcity mindset goes all the way back to the pilgrims and is promoted by comfortable oligarchs today, even today, as a successful strategy of division. And we have to break free. We have to break free from this idea that our lives are defined by a zero-sum game, declares Eddie Glaude. He says, that frame, to my, to my mind, is evil. And it's not that Americans lack imagination. It's that too many of us are imagining the wrong things, like widespread voter fraud and deep state conspiracies and Satan-worshipping politicians. Those of us who are grounded in demonstrable truths and able to see the world's abundance will have to lead the way with better imaginings. And so many of us already are working toward a better world. I wanna close with another quote from the Reverend Molly Hausch Gordon, who offers this vision of what people of goodwill might do. We, we, create, we create flourishing, she says, flourishing that is irresistible and desirable and that people want to be a part of. And we create that flourishing to be inclusive we let it be known that there is a place for everyone at that welcome table, if they will let go of the lies and come inside. She imagines a place of thriving and feasting and dancing, with space for everyone, like the very best kind of holiday gathering. May all of us work toward that world of truth and healing and gratitude. And may we keep going on in these tough times. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.